So on Friday, I was supposed to fly out to Montreal for the weekend and come back. I was supposed to go for dinner with my my family, and then I was supposed to meet up with my girlfriend. Then I got a call on Thursday. I was I was at work from our immigration lawyer. She says she just messaged me basically. She said, "Do you have a minute? Like, please grab room so we can talk in private." So I, I went on room, spoke to her, and she said, "So where are you right now?" So she said, uh, "Okay, don't leave the country because." Uh, it looks like you're not going to be able, you're going to be included on this executive order that's coming up and you, you might have trouble coming back in. On January 25th, 2017, a little over a week ago to the date of this recording, the newly elected president of the U.S., Donald Trump, issued an executive order banning immigration into the U.S. from seven countries, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Libya, Sudan, and Somalia. The order has since sent the entire world reeling. And as we all are still kind of shaking off the shock of what the consequences of this means, we wanted to put together a short episode to make sense of it all. As a disclaimer, this isn't our typical Kerning Cultures episode where we try to dive deeply and tell a complete story. The past week and a half have been such a whirlwind We just wanted to capture these moments and try our best to understand it all, for you and just as equally for us. And just as these events are unfolding piecemeal, we thought we'd style this episode similarly, as a collage of moments from the past week and a half. We'll weave individual stories together with recordings from protest marches our team of producers attended in the UK and in the US, in Philadelphia, and in Seattle. I'm Razan Alzayani. And I'm Hiba Fisher. And today on Kerning Cultures, Trump's immigration ban. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. I was born in Damascus, Syria. Um, I lived there until I was 18 years old. We're talking to a young man in the United States who asked to remain anonymous. Syria is like Damascus, specifically. It's like, a, you know, you go out, you go out of your house, your cousins live like next door. Everybody's in the same neighborhood, so it's nice. Like, you know everybody. You walk, like you talk to the grocery store owner or like the barber or whatever. They all know you. They all like know your dad, like, and you know your, your parents. Also means you can't do anything crazy because whatever you do, everyone will know about it. Uh, <laughs> everyone will know, will get the report. I then uh, moved to uh, Canada, um, went to school, did my bachelor's and my master's. I came to Montreal and you know, it was freezing cold. Uh, the first day I stepped out of the airport, it was so cold, I, I almost turned, came back. Um, but, you know, then I got used to it. He stayed in Montreal for about eight years, during which time the war started in Syria in 2011. He managed to sponsor his parents and siblings and bring them over to Canada, and a few years later, he moved to the U.S. for work. Once a month, he flies back for the weekend to visit his family. And about a week ago to this recording, he was planning, as he has been, to go to Montreal to spend time with his family and his girlfriend, who also lives there. And that's when, on Friday, January 27th, 2017, Trump issued an executive order banning immigration from the seven countries of Syria, Iran, Iraq, Libya, Yemen, Sudan, and Somalia from entering the United States. We don't want them here. 
We want to ensure that we are not admitting into our country the very threats our soldiers are fighting overseas. Um, so I had to cancel my flights and my plans and everything. He said when he told his girlfriend, she was really upset. And she was worried about like the future, about what our plans would be long term. Rightfully so. Obviously, I'm also concerned. Now this froze all my plans on what would I do in my next steps because I was planning to settle down and like start a family and everything. But clearly, I cannot do that now because of all this instability. So I need to sort that out before I, I get into that uh, into that mode. Where is your girlfriend from? Uh, she's also uh, Syrian Canadian, so she is not. Uh, she's not able to come visit me either. So, so with me, like, not able to leave the country, it feels like a, a, like somebody's in the house arrest situation where uh, it's actually worse because uh, not only you can't leave, nobody can actually come and visit you, or at least the people you care about, they can't come and visit you. Uh, so in a sense, it's like, it's worse. Even though he's dual citizen Canadian-Syrian, this ban is forcing him to now reevaluate all of his long-term options. So basically, this ban not only limits me from traveling in the short term, 120 days or whatever, um, it also freezes my any prospects of me staying here like on a permanent basis or just living here uh, long term. So um, definitely that's something needs to be sorted out before I, like, I decide anything. I doubt that things will become clearer in the, in the next like couple of weeks. So I'm going to have to like give myself a deadline and look at my options. Uh, where can I move to? Where can I live? Somewhere that allows me to see my family when I want to see them. You know, my family is, is they're, they're like old, right? Like my parents are old, so they're not going to, you know, they have only a couple of years left. So I'm not going to like uh, not spend my time with them. Um, so I'm going to have to reevaluate my options and hopefully like decide something that lets me like contribute to the society and have a good career and be able to uh, live happily, like see my family and just have a normal life. And like, there's, there's many places you can do this in the world. Like it doesn't have to be just here. So that's fine. <laughs> like, I'm not super worried about myself. I think I am in a better position than, than a lot of people. Uh, but definitely it did has like an effect on me that I, I don't see as necessary by any means. Um, it's just like, it makes zero sense to me. Like usually people who are dual citizens of some other countries, they're not, they're not an unknown state. They're an unknown state. Uh, you have all the information you need to know about them. That's like one aspect of it. The other aspect is like I've, I've been living in the States for a couple of years already. So there's already like so much information about me for the government that they can utilize to determine if if I'm doing anything wrong. It doesn't make sense to include people who are already, who are already like here. So it's kind of disappointing, but, you know, like there's nothing I can do. I mean, at this point, and I know that your family has gone through quite a bit in the past six years do you feel at this point i feel like you're taking this very pragmatically like very rationally of what to do is that just years of dealing with this kind of or is that like where <laughs> yeah no totally uh we have dealt we have seen so many crazy images ups and downs like as syrians like anybody from that area that was affected by by this or like the war or and, and you, just, you just have to find some sanity uh, and like try to have a path forward again uh, when you look at others and how bad it is for them and like you just feel lucky that you know you're not at least you have like you have a chance uh you're not completely left in the dark some people are actually left in the dark completely
My name is Isra Sharif. I'm from Westchester, Pennsylvania, and my parents are from Libya. And why are you here today? I mean, this affects me too, like way too closely. Like I heard it and I thought, that's my dad. That's my sister-in-law who now holds a green card and can't visit her family for how long? We don't know. It hit way too close to home. Can I ask what your name is? I'm Susan. It's our 40th wedding anniversary. I'm proud of my fellow citizens that they're willing to stand up for others. If we wait until our own rights are denied, it's too late. If one American is handled unjustly, we all suffer. So I spoke to the student at UC Berkeley, actually. Her name is Nisa Dang. And she just got hired by this other lawyer So since the war in Yemen broke out. She's been helping Yemeni refugees help process their paperwork to get to the United States. So Nisa has been in Djibouti since Friday, and she described to me the situation on the ground and what it was like. Hi, yes, this is Nisa. Let me know a little bit more about you and what you're currently doing and where you are. Actually, I'm from California, and I came out to Djibouti a couple days ago to work with an immigration lawyer, Julie Goldberg. The ban has had a severe impact on the Yemeni refugees and Yemeni community here because a lot of people were already visa holders, literally more than 80 people were sent back from Qatar and Turkey. And they went through those two countries because they were processing their paperwork through there. So they were on the flight, to, like on their way to America. And when they got to Qatar and Turkey, they were sent back. When that order got signed, they couldn't go back to Yemen. There's a war. So essentially, the Djiboutian government has been helping massively on that case. And then they got in contact with Julie and Julie was able to get them to come back to Djibouti. So the first few hundred people we want to get out of here have their visas in hand. Or are U.S. citizens who literally left the United States to come to either Djibouti or Yemen to escort their family members back to the States, you know. So they're stuck here, too. I mean, you could imagine, first of all, there's a lot of people already, you know, gave up all that they owned and exhausted their finances, etc., to even be able to make the trip. And then secondly, the despair, you know, like you're on your way to America and then you're sent back um, because someone issued a paper. Some of them talked about how they have to cancel flights and plans and others talked about the feeling of having opportunity ripped from you. These people had not seen their family members in two years, three years, you know, um, escaped an actual war that the world has basically all but ignored. When I spoke to Nisa a few days after the executive order, she said that Julie, herself, and Julie's daughter were the only people on the ground working with stranded Yemenis in Djibouti. We jokingly call our office the compound. It's based out of Julie's home, and she has two families staying here with her. It's her hodgepodge stuff, so it's her, um, her daughter... <laughs> I'm her daughter's friend and literally started like a couple days ago. I, I just want to emphasize the Yemeni community has been so helpful 
in these cases, like they've been translating for us because my Arabic is rudimentary at best and Julie speaks zero Arabic. Um, and so like we rely on them. It's very much a communal effort at this point. And we are currently working to find any judges who are able to provide sanctuary for our clients. But it's been a very difficult process because, as you can see, Donald Trump has ruined all of that. If you were to describe the feeling on behalf of the people there, are they angry? Are they confused? Do they feel discriminated against? What is the general feeling other than obviously despair and not being able to have control of your own situation? I wouldn't want to speak on behalf of them um, at all, but from the conversations that I have had, there is a deep, deep feeling of betrayal because these are United States citizens or family members of, you know, American citizens. And I know that in the States, there's a lot of talk about, oh, legality of human beings and whether or not they have documents and whatnot. And these people do have documents. So the question to me comes down to what type of immigrants are allowed. So I personally think it's a question of discrimination. I really do. And I, I would even say that that's something that the Yemeni community feels here as well. And why do you do the work you do? Um, my parents are refugees from Vietnam. I deeply understand the cost of war and the sacrifices that immigrants and refugees can make to come to the United States to start over. I do it because I understand it. And I know that when my parents were coming to the United States, there were people like Ms. Julian, like myself, who worked on their cases to make sure that they could get there safely. And I think that it's about time that we extend that to the people who most need it. Hi, um, my name is Vashi Patel. Um, I live here in the Philadelphia area, and we moved here about six years ago from California. And I'm here with my, my children and my friends because I am so fearful of what's happening to this country. I mean, ever since this new administration took, took over, it's just been day after day of just executive orders of hate. And I want to show my kids what it means to be a true U.S. citizen and a citizen of this globe, that we are all connected in some way. It doesn't matter what religion you are. Our souls are all connected in some way. Christians, Muslims, Hindus. I'm a practicing Hindu, but that doesn't mean that I don't feel what my fellow Muslim feels. If you were sitting right now, and it wasn't me in mm. this chair, mm -hmm. but you know, it was the new president, and you were like having a conversation with Yeah, I, I was... Thinking, you were about, thinking that. about this, yeah. what would you say? I, I want to say that, hey man, did you see any uh, problem from Persian people? I'm not talking about government, Persian people. Just show me. Did he talk to people? He didn't say, hey president, you cannot come here. No, he said people. And when I read about constitution in America, they said we are the people and we are people. So, what is different? 
What are we supposed to make of this whirlwind of events? We're not entirely sure. But producers Jackie Sophia, Alex Atak, Hippa Fisher, and myself, we all sat down to try and make sense of it. A few of us were nursing colds, so pardon any congestion. This is us. Honestly, this isn't, like, it's not a matter of just reversing the ban. That's not going to fix the what caused this type of behavior in the first place and this type of thinking that to ban people from these seven countries is going to make America safer. That That's not going to fix that root cause. I mean, again, I'm, I'm quite far removed from what's going on in America because I live in England. This is Alex, who's in Bristol. I kind of thought that it was, I had the impression that it was a huge, overwhelming amount of people were opposing Trump's executive actions this week. And then just now on the BBC World Service, they were talking about how the number of people that support what he's done this week is still overwhelmingly high in comparison to the people opposing it. And uh, and that kind of freaked me out a bit because that, that took me out of my bubble a little bit. It kind of feels like nobody... The only thing people seem to be repeating was trying to understand the other side and trying to get out of the echo chamber or the bubble, whatever you want to call it, that all of us live in, um, that feels like a long-term solution. And in the short term, it seems like the only thing people can do is go out and rally on the streets. What were your experiences, Jackie, going to the rallies? Was this, I'm sure definitely everybody was marching out of indignation, but, you know, this isn't actually, like all of this anger is not changing why this happened in the first place. What what were your thoughts? For me, it's been really rejuvenating it's been i mean this is gosh this is the third protest i've been to in a week it's which it just blows my mind like i moved back to the u.s and i thought i was coming to a town where nothing was going to (laughs) happen and when you come into these rallies into these protests the only thing that's palpable is this sense of friendship and and compassion when i interviewed this one woman who she had a, a flag draped around her head like a hijab. And she wasn't Muslim, but she was bawling. She was crying so intensely. And I I went up to her and I was talking to her and her two kids were there with her. She had a son and a daughter with her. And her daughter was like hugging her. She was so concerned for her children. She was like, I don't understand why people why does religion or why does anything have to keep us divided? And and after a woman came up to her from the crowd, completely random, like did not know her, came up and gave her this huge hug. And, and it was like, it was so beautiful. And I was just like trying not to cry myself. And, and, it, you know, it was, there was an incredible sense of compassion that I think this is bringing about a conversation that hasn't been discussed really up until this point, which is just this sense of human unity. Okay, I don't know if you guys remember all the protests that were happening around the world right before the invasion of Iraq in 2003. People were marching to protest this because they thought that given the facts that they were given at the time, which to be fair, we didn't have as much information then as we do now, or we don't have this immediate access, right? They felt that it was morally wrong because of several reasons, but one of which there was no evidence. And even then, I mean, years later, what, this war went on from 2003 to 2011, roughly? And even then, with all the information that came out during the war, after the war, that implicated Bush and the fact that there was 
there was no evidence to justify this invasion. Nothing really happened. Like, was there due diligence after the fact? But all this information is out there. And yet, somehow, like, by some crazy... I don't know how this journey happened, but Trump got elected. Do you know what I mean? Knowing everything that we know. And I feel that... I don't know. Maybe I'm just a cynic here, but I don't feel like it would it will change. Kind of agree with you, Rizan. Actually, um, I, the uh, the overwhelming feeling I have is that people can protest as much as they want, but every day something happens that takes us in the opposite direction. I mean, today firing his attorney general, right? Like that that seems like something he shouldn't been able to do, right? I mean, just as easily as he did it. But he did it, and and there's nothing anybody can do about it. And it feels like that the, I I would be I would be surprised if the this pace continued for the next four years. But um, it also seems like the next four years is going to be a succession of Donald Trump doing exactly as Donald Trump pleases, and um, the rest of the world being outraged but completely uh, powerless at the same time. I don't think we I I I don't consider myself an optimist, but. There needs to be stories that bring people of like-minded thought together because that's that's what's going to cause a ripple effect. You're not going to get the guy who believes that the next immigrant coming into this country is going to take his job. You're not going to convince him. But if you can convince the guy or the woman who is a little bit more towards the center of things, then she's ultimately going to convince someone who's a little bit more to the right of her. And then that person is going to convince, like, right, you can't change people's minds overnight, but you can adjust their mindsets if they're closer to what you are. I mean, I think this country is built on a certain set of morals and values that can't just disappear. Since the date of this recording, a U.S. federal judge temporarily blocked the immigration order and managed to lift the ban nationwide. As of Saturday, February 4th, airlines once again permitted visa holders from the seven countries to board U.S.-bound flights. Nisa and Julie managed to get around 50 people on a flight to the United States from Djibouti as of Saturday. The federal judge's ruling is temporary, putting President Trump's policy on hold at least until the government and opponents have a chance to make full arguments. The White House vowed late Friday night to fight what it called an outrageous ruling, saying it would seek an emergency halt to the judge's order as soon as possible and restore the president's lawful and appropriate order. By Sunday, though, news emerged that the U.S. Federal Appeals Court rejected Trump's request to reinstate the travel ban. We have absolutely no idea what the coming weeks hold. Every day the stage seems to change. But what we do know, what we hope for, is that after listening to this episode, you, wherever in this world you may be, will want to host a conversation amongst your community, your circles, about the role we each play in reaching across the aisle in this globalized world. And that, at least, we all can control. This episode was produced by Alex Atak, Rezana Zayani, Lily Crown, Jacqueline Sophia, and myself, Hiba Fisher, with special thanks to producer Dana Balut for tracking Nisa down in Djibouti, and to Rabia Shabih for fact-checking. Sound design and original music by Mohamed Khrizat. As always, if you like what you heard here today, please take a quick second to rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. 
It really helps boost our rankings so other listeners can find out about us. Thanks for listening, and until next time.